If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And Midi can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hello, and welcome back to ACRAC. I'm Jed Wolpaw, and I'm excited to have back with me today Dr. Jochen Stepan, who is, as listeners may remember, one of our cardiac anesthesiologists. We did a prior episode on pulmonary hypertension that was really fantastic, and we got a lot of great comments on that. And now Jochen is back to talk about another really important issue. We're going to talk about adults with congenital heart disease. Uh, we're seeing more and more, obviously, uh, of these kiddos surviving to become adults. And so those of us who do general anesthesia for adults are going to be seeing more of this. And so Jochen uh, is taking a special interest in this and is going to help us figure this out. Jochen, thanks so much for coming back on the show. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. All right. Before we start, a couple quick announcements. First, the application period continues for the ACRAC intern position. If you have already submitted an application, thank you. We've got some great ones, and we're just going to leave the application season open for a couple more weeks to allow anyone out there who wants to apply to send in an application. Remember, what we need is your CV and a short couple paragraph, less than one page description of why you think you would make a good intern for the ACRAC podcast. Would love it if you had some experience with multimedia stuff, uh, tech, anything uh, around production, design, tech, um, multimedia, as well as skill with things like the Twitter. All right. If you haven't seen it already, check out our new ACRAC logo. You can see it at ACRAC.com or popping up in your podcast app. It is the result of a design competition that we had on a really great website called 99designs. And that is not to take away at all from some of the fantastic logos that were sent in by listeners. Thank you. They were really great. In the end, we went with this one that was designed by a professional designer on this website, but really appreciated everybody sending them in. But check it out, ACRAC.com. I know a lot of you have written in asking if we're going to have mugs, T-shirts, pens, any kind of ACRAC swag. That may be in the future. Stay tuned. I will let you know if we uh, and when we are able to uh, get that underway. I want to say a huge thank you to Carolyn Mosher, who actually was a huge help in trying to get this logo to fit on the website in such a way that you could actually see it well. Uh, she was an absolute uh, savior, and thank you, thank you, thank you for all your help with that. Finally, I'm going to add a new feature to ACRAC, where at the end, 
I'm going to have some random recommendations, things that I think are interesting, that I'm reading, that I've seen, just something you might want to check out if you're interested. And I'll also ask my guests to make a random recommendation as well. Now, I will say that uh, I've already recorded the part of this with Johan. I'm actually coming back in to add a little bit of this in, and so I didn't get a chance to ask him. And the next episode will be the same. But once we're back uh, in a couple episodes in the future with uh, recording in real time, I will ask our guests uh, when we have them to give us a random recommendation as well to share with you. And if you have a random recommendation that you think is really good and that you would like me to share on the podcast, send it on in. I will occasionally, if I've got some good ones from listeners, share a listener random recommendation. So if you've got them, send them in, akrak at akrak.com. Send in a random recommendation, anything that you think is interesting, you're reading, you've seen, you've watched, whatever, send it on in, and I'll choose a couple every now and again to share on the air. All right, that's it. Let's get going with the main event. Jochen, I turn back to you. So let's start at the beginning. How common are uh, congenital cardiac anomalies? Well, congenital abnormalities in general are more of an exception than the norm, which is a good thing. Um, but congenital cardiac anomalities are actually the most common abnormality. They outnumber cerebral palsy, genital defects, and represent about 1% of congenital lesions. And this only pertains to true defects, not even accounting for others that, while technically congenital, do not manifest till much later in life, such as a bicuspid aortic valve. Okay, so about 1% of all... Uh, genetic defects are actually cardiac in nature, and that means the ones that are present at birth. No, but what one percent of kids born of kids born have a cardiac lesion. One percent of kids born. Okay, so even more than I thought. All yeah. right, so one percent—that's a huge number. One percent of kids born in the in the in our world—is that U.S. or worldwide? It's worldwide. Okay, worldwide. One percent of kids have a congenital cardiac lesion. Okay. So this is not insignificant. This is a lot of people. So, all right, it's pretty frequent in children then. Yeah. Um, what's the incidence in adults? So how many of these are living to become adults? Well, the incidence in children actually has been stable for the last 30 years or so. However, what did change is the age distribution of patients with congenital heart disease. It used to be really heavily skewed towards infants and young children, with the majority of congenital heart disease patients being much less than 18 years of age. But given the improvements in medical care, surgical techniques, critical care medicine, and of course, anesthesia management, this has changed dramatically, and the age distribution of patients with congenital lesions closely resembles the one of patients without congenital heart disease, with only significant difference being in the relative surplus in the first few years of life. The overall result is an ever-increasing number of adults with congenital heart disease, to a point where adults actually now outnumber children with congenital heart disease in high-income countries. But bear in mind, the number of admissions for adults with congenital heart disease is still rising, and those patients can present for any kind of procedure that is not necessarily connected to their cardiac disease. They will also need to undergo their pedectomies, become pregnant, or present as trauma patients. Yeah, and so, uh, and, and of course we'll get to this, but um, the more of these patients that are out there presenting for things like appendectomies, the more important it will be, of course, for uh, non-cardiac anesthesiologists to know uh, the things they need to know to be able to provide safe uh, anesthetic care for these patients. Agreed. Um, so I guess the next question that follows then is, are these patients at increased perioperative risk? Well, of course, the show and that says, yes, they are. But um, basically, you have an anatomical phenotype that is similar to a pediatric patient. But you also get a physiological phenotype that is very similar to a geriatric patient with all the associated comorbidities. So you get, in my opinion at least, you get the best of, two, of both worlds. Well, 
the worst of both worlds, depending on how you look at it. Yeah. Others and I have conducted studies evaluating the perioperative risk in those patients, mainly in large databases. And without going into too much details, adults with congenital heart disease presenting for non-cardiac surgery appear to be at higher risk for perioperative morbidity and mortality. That is usually related to the complexity of the underlying disease, the status of the repair, and their comorbidities. But it must be said, though, that this increase, especially in mortality, is due to the combined, um, to combined and complex lesions. And it can have mortality for non-cardiac surgery up to 7% or higher even. Wow, 7% mortality for non-cardiac surgery due to the underlying um, congenital disease. Correct, if they are complex in nature. For complex uh, lesions. Okay. So what types of congenital heart disease are there, and how do we classify them? Well, there are several types, and they can be classified to anatomy, physiology, severity, and so forth. But frequently, lesions are described to as cyanotic or acyanotic, and then subdivided into anatomical phenotypes, such as tetralogy for low or septal defects. What I actually find more practical for the anesthesiologist is to divide them by severity or physiological phenotype. For example, the Bethesda criteria describe low, moderate, or high-risk patients. Patients with a small ASD and VSD or the repairs would fall into the low-risk category. Coarctation, Epstein, tetralogy or so would fall into the moderate-risk category. And then finally, Fontan, transposition, cyanotic lesions in general fall into the high-risk category. That being said, from a management standpoint, I personally divide adults with congenital heart disease into four categories. Patients with obstructive defects, patients with pulmonary hypertension and right heart failure, patients with shunting lesions, and then, of course, patients with a single ventricle or Fontan. And what, make, what, what is it about that classification, uh, Jochen, that works for you? Why do you do it that way? It makes it, I think it makes it easier to classify those patients to physiology because that already tells you how you handle those patients. You can get very easily lost in all the minute details about what the anatomy exactly is or where they're coming from. But oftentimes, the anatomy is not the primary driver um, of what you change it how you manage it. It's more about the physiological consequences. Okay, that's a really important point. So I think it would be useful to go through each of those, but before we do, let me ask you, what other comorbidities can we expect to see in these patients? Well, I think it's very essential to recognize that adult congenital heart disease is not just an isolated disease that, however complex, only affects the heart. Indeed, this is a multi-system disease that affects multiple organ systems and has far-reaching consequences beyond the cardiovascular systems. But that being said, from a cardiac standpoint, it's still fairly common for those patients who suffer from pulmonary hypertension, right heart failure, and actually patients with single ventricle physiology have an incidence of heart failure that approaches almost 70% in their 40s, when patients with tetralogy about 60%. Similarly, the incidence of arrhythmia is quite high in those patients, with half of them suffering from some form of arrhythmia in their 60s. Moreover, hypoxia can be an ever-increasing problem, as the resistance to pulmonary blood flow increases with age, Adult patients, especially with single ventricle physiology, have been found to have restrictive lung disease and lower mental efficiency. In addition, as pressure increases in the Fontan circuit, vena-venous collateral formation is not uncommon and can lead to desaturations. Um, aortic pulmonary collaterations can also form, which just diminishes systemic cardiac output and volume overload the single ventricle. And at last, the other considerations include bleeding, renal insufficiency, liver failure, and, of course, difficulty obtaining vascular access, which is something we're very um, interested in. That's great. So this is really important to know the kind of um, constellation of things that can present with these uh, lesions. So what do we want to do to make sure we evaluate them preoperatively so we can identify which of these things are present? So, of course, one needs to consider all the regular pieces of a pre-op eval, as well as the type of surgical repair and the repair the patient already underwent, the planned operation, and the patient's clinical status. 
Beyond that, a key question is if one finds himself in a center for adults with congenital heart disease. We actually know from the literature that those centers have an improved survival compared to centers that only treat infrequent patients with congenital heart disease. What we do not fully know at this point is if that center should be pediatric or an adult hospital. But it appears to depend, uh, sorry, it appears to depend more on how many patients those centers actually see rather than the exact classification. But regardless of where one practices, it's always a good idea to help uh, to ask for help if one is not sure about the patient's anatomy or management. So basically, the more expert a center is, uh, the more experience they have, the better for these patients. I think that's what we see from the literature. Okay. The, actually, the approach to those patients is, is multidisciplinary in nature anyways, and quite frequently involves multiple disciplines, from Pete's cardiology, cardiac anesthesia, and so forth. The goal really is to establish that the patient is optimized and planned for surgery, that the procedure is done at the correct location with the right team, and that the post-op disposition is adequate. So if you want to kind of... Um, so one of the things that we always obtain beforehand is, like, of course, a detailed physical exam and the history that gives you information, excess tolerance, cyanosis, or any signs of heart failure. Oftentimes, those patients also have a preoperative EKG to look for arrhythmias and conduction defects. But importantly, what I think is one of the important things is the preoperative echocardiogram, which is generally desirable to provide details on the patient's anatomy and physiology, and also will show you the presence of pulmonary hypertension, shunts, heart failure, and so forth. And in some cases, you might even get the cath report and MRI beforehand. Yeah, it seems like you'd really want an echo on these patients, right? Pretty <laughs> much, yeah. I would think would be a requirement. Um, all right. So since uh, there's really quite a lot of difference in the types of diseases and the comorbidities that we've talked about, um, what do you think the real key management strategies are for these patients? I think what we alluded to beforehand is kind of those four management strategies to see if they have an obstructive defect primarily, if they primarily have pulmonary hypertension, right heart failure, if they fall in the category of shunting lesions, or if it's actually single pent- uh, ventric with Fontan. Maybe we can talk about a few examples or so. I think that'd be great. Um, why don't we start with the most frequent type, uh, so shunting lesions, and if you could give me maybe an example, and let's talk about how it affects anesthetic management. Sure. Let's say we have a patient with a ventricular septal defect who's presenting for a gallbladder removal. Um, if you think about it, atrial septal defect and, to a lesser extent, um, VSDs are likely to be to the most frequent one encountered for the adult physician. Severity can range from completely asymptomatic patient that needs almost no change in anesthetic technique to patient with severe pulmonary hypertension and shunt flow reversal, usually referred to as Eisenmenger, where the normally left-to-right shunt then turns into um, right-to-left shunt. Mm-hmm. Ideally, those lesions are found during childhood and enclosed before they result in additional comorbidities, such as ventricular remodeling, heart failure, arrhythmia, or even a stroke. And that, of course, is the most obvious problem, as with a direct shunt between the right and the left, you can have particular matter, air, or pathogens that enter the venous side, then bypass the lungs and and send an emboli to the brain, and therefore lead to strokes. So avoiding air entrapment by really meticulous care during venous drug or volume injections of utmost importance. We actually know of some providers who are routinely placing filter or bubble traps in their IV to mitigate that risk. Okay, and this is obviously until they're repaired, or does it, is that important even once it's repaired? Well, once it's, once it's repaired, you can be certain that there's no more shunt than not, but I think in this case we're talking about a patient who has a VSD that's still present. Yeah, a, pres- a VSD that's open, okay. Well, in general, the severity of the cardiovascular compromise and the remodeling greatly depends actually on the size of the lesion. So larger lesions, of course, have worse short and long-term outcomes, And one easy way to determine the severity of the lesion is by looking at the ratio of pulmonary blood flow to systemic blood flow, which is called the QPQS ratio. So a lesion with a QPQS ratio of 1 to 1.5 are usually considered small, 
And then once you reach like 2.1, sorry, 2 to 1, then it's considered a severe or large lesion. Okay. And the, as you said, the larger the lesion, the more significant uh, and the more high risk. Correct. You usually uh, have a high incidence of heart failure, um, vascular um, ventricular remodeling, and so forth with the larger lesions. And um, you can actually measure that um, in the operating room using the pulse oximeter. If you think about it, patient with a left to right shunt it have a, should have a saturation, actually, that is about 100% if the lungs are okay. So if during the case there is less flow going left to right or even a shunt reversal, you will see significant signs of hypoxia in the pulse ox reading. That is, of course, not due to a ventilation oxygenation issue, but simply because of the shunting in the left of the heart. And the, the opposite is true for a patient with a primary right to left shunt who will be, by definition, hypoxic at baseline. So those patients should be very kept very closely to their baseline oxygen saturation. For example, if a patient presents with a pulse ox reading in the mid-80s, you should keep them in that range. If you decrease their um, pulse oxygenation further, um, you would see a worsening of the right-to-left shunt and consequently a hypoxia, while increases in the pulse ox reading would signify increased blood flow through the heart and lungs, which can actually potentially trigger heart failure due to volume overload. So seeing a high oxygen saturation is not necessarily a good thing. So that's really interesting and, and not necessarily intuitive, right, is that uh, we are so used to in the in the non congenital uh, heart disease world. If a patient is hypoxic, we want to fix that. We want to give them oxygen until they're not hypoxic, but these patients, that could be a problem. Yeah, that could be. So it's not that anesthesia fixes everything and puts somebody under and they see a set going from the 80s to the mid-90s. Like, well, all they need is anesthesia. That might actually be a bad thing in the long term. You might drive them into heart failure. Okay, that's good to know. So, So, yeah, how about the patient in in our example who has the uh, VSD? Okay, so let's talk, so in general, if you have a patient with a left-to-right shunt, they do tolerate general anesthesia actually quite well because most of what we do, to be honest with you, actually lines up very nicely with the hemodynamic goals that we have with those patients. The key really is to manipulate the QPQS ratio by modulating the pulmonary vascular resistance and also systemic vascular resistance. Um, in patients with a primary left to right shunt, you want to increase PVR, lowering FiO2, allowed for mild hypercapnia, you could tolerate acidosis, especially if it's respiratory in nature, and you can use medication that affect PVR, such as phenylephrine. All of those are things we do during our normal anesthetic anyways. Same with positive pressure ventilation and catecholamine release, as well as wide, uh, sorry, mild hypothermia. They're all tolerated well, though I'm, of course, not advocating for them. And then lastly, drops in SVR, as done by all our general anesthetics or region anesthesia, are tolerated well because it also modifies the, the shunting direction. Of course, it becomes a little bit more complex if the patient already has progressed to the stage of heart failure, which complicates the management by just adding another layer of complexity. And then the opposite would be true for patients with a right-to-left shunt, who are really treated more similar to a patient with right heart failure or pulmonary hypertension. Okay, and we'll talk more about that. But so basically, you know, what, it's interesting. What you're saying here is that a patient with a left-to-right shunt, you can decrease the amount of shunt by raising their pulmonary vascular resistance. Correct, yeah. And so uh, we, we usually, where we, where we usually think of this is the opposite, right? We have a patient, for example, with pulmonary hypertension, and we want to lower their pulmonary vascular resistance to the extent that we can by things like uh, avoiding hypercapnia, avoiding acidosis, avoiding cold. Uh, but here, actually, you're saying we might tolerate those things because it might allow the PVR to come up and therefore reduce the shunt. That's absolutely right. So most of the things that kind of happen almost naturally during general anesthesia, like positive pressure ventilation, maybe getting the entire up a little bit, or decreasing the FiO2 to um, um, avoid um, absorption intellectuses, they're actually all good things. So in general, those patients, unless they're kind of in florid heart failure, are actually tolerating anesthesia quite well. Great. All right. So now let's talk about a case of a patient with a cyanotic lesion. 
Um, I know they're relatively rare, but certainly a, a little scary for uh, people who aren't used to dealing with them. Um, so I know you mentioned before common ones within this category are tetralogy of Fallot or transposition of the great arteries. How do we manage those? You're right. They, they certainly do sound complex, and usually when people think about congenital heart disease, those are the lesions they're, they're thinking about. Um, but if you kind of combine them in the physiological group, as I alluded to earlier, they actually resemble the, one, the management for patients with pulmonary hypertension and right heart failure. So it's really unlikely that the adult provider is going to encounter a patient with an unrepaired tetralogy of follow, or even like less likely to some, encounter some patient with an unrepaired transposition of the great artery that is not in some um, form palliated. Um, what all of them do have in common, though, is the probability of right ventricular failure arrhythmia, especially if some patient with a repaired tetralogy fellow so, who now might have severe pulmonary regurgitation and RV dilatation. Or like the patient with a repaired transposition of the great arteries, maybe via busting or ascent, sorry, maybe via mustard or ascending, or the congenitally corrected transposition patient. All of the, the latter two actually have the RV now as the systemic ventricle. So management of pulmonary hypertension in general is pretty straightforward, and once you think about it, not different from our non-congenital heart patient. And we talked about it a little bit in the last podcast. The two key factors are to lower PBR and then su- support the RV. And you kind of mentioned a couple of those things earlier already. PBR can actually be lowered by like keeping the FI too high, hyperventilating a little bit, avoid acidosis. You want to keep them warm keep the mean pulmonary pressures relatively lower. As ideally, you have them spontaneously breathing. I mean, avoid catecholamine release, so pain, anxiety are all bad things. And then, finally, you want to use medications, either lower PBR outright, such as inhaled nitric, or you're going to use um, pressors that at least lack the vaso, also the alpha-adrenergic activity, such as vasopressin. And then, uh, certainly, you want to support the right heart, keeping them eubulimic, supporting conductility, maintaining coronary perfusion, and then lower systemic vascular resistance within reason and maintaining normal center rhythm, which I don't think is ever the wrong answer. Right, right, that makes sense. And so really uh, things like vasopressin as your presser are going to increase your systemic pressure without increasing your pulmonary pressure. So that's a, a good option if you need it. Yeah, it, it certainly is. So in that bit, not only does it increase your SVR, but also kind of improves the pulmonary blood flow to the ventricle, especially a very hypertrophied right ventricle that's very beneficial. Oftentimes you need to restore the blood flow to the ventricle first before you can support the conductility with maybe a beta agonist. Okay, so when we so basically here with this category, what we're saying is we're probably not going to see an unrepaired uh, cyanotic lesion. That just isn't going to come to us as an adult. So we're going to see them somewhere along the way, and what it may end up looking like is uh, right heart failure, and they're going to treat it like any other kind of right heart failure, doing these things that you've gone over to both uh, decrease pulmonary vascular resistance and increase or at least support right heart function. I, I agree. I think it's certainly not completely out of the possibilities that it'll never happen, but it's way more likely to see somebody who has repaired and then either have, has the long-term consequences of that repair. Great. All right. So how about the third category of obstructive lesions? So maybe, for example, a patient after repair of a truncus arteriosus who now needs a surgery, let's say maybe a spine surgery. So that's maybe actually one of the most gratifying categories because despite of a very big multitude of lesions, our anesthetic management does not really differ from the one that we already know from any other obstructive valvular disease. For example, the obstruction of the or complete atresia can occur at the level of the valves, the um, AV connections, uh, or the atrial and venous inflow. However, those patients um, are unlikely to survive in adulthood, and therefore the range of lesions encountered narrows down really to the valvular stenosis. That is truly not different from our bread and butter aortic stenosis patient, and then, of course, you have the patient with coarctation of the aorta. 
The neat thing, though, is that you can transfer your hemodynamic goals for a patient with aortic stenosis. So pre full, maintain afterload, support coronary and avoid tachycardia, and maintain sinus rhythm to the one in your example who had the repaired tracheostomiosis and is now presenting for spine surgery. If you um, give me just a second, so briefly, that patient was born basically with a common valve that received blood from both the LV and the RV, and that's, and that's directed to both the pulmonary and systemic circulation all in one vessel. So it's thereby fully mixing, and it's being hypoxic at baseline. But during childhood, it has to be repaired. The BST was closed, systemic blood flow was established via the aorta, if it was possible, and usually a valve conduit is placed between the RV and the pulmonary circulation. So it's actually not uncommon for those patients to present with either aortic or conduit stenosis later in life, but their um, repaired anatomy looks pretty similar to what you have in, in, um, in a non-cardiac patient, except that you now have that conduit stenosis that leads to the RV failure and the pulmonary hypertension. Okay, so these are patients who you need to treat as if they had aortic stenosis. You're going to want them, as you said, to be on the slower side, full, good contractility, um, and uh, that will help a lot. And then, of course, if they have uh, RV failure, you're going to do all the things right. that we already yeah. talked about for RV failure. The thing is, you can even if you put them into those neat categories, you can always always layer another um, layer of complexity on top of it, basically. Absolutely. All right. And then finally, we have the patients with single ventricle physiology, um, for example, a patient with a Fontan. So what lesions are rooted towards single ventricle physiology? So a patient with a single ventricle that ultimately undergo Fontan operation, they really represent a variety of different anatomical pathologies. Among those, there you have your tricuspid atresia patient, your hyperplastic left heart, your unbalanced AV canal, double RV, and many more that all gets funneled towards the Fontan. But what you end up is a situation where blood from the superior and inferior vena cava can directly enter the pulmonary arteries without going through the heart first. So this blood then flows across the lungs, enters a, from, uh, sorry, enters a common atrium, gets across an AV valve into a single ventricle, and then finally injected into the aorta and the systemic circulation. In this arrangement, then, blood flows along a pressure gradient between the CVP and a common atrium through the lungs without getting pushed by the right ventricle. So thereby essentially replacing pulmonary and, sorry, essentially replacing pulmonary and systemic blood flow in series instead of parallel as it usually is. So, it? Go ahead. Yeah, so basically... Uh, Right. Instead of having these two sides of the heart, you're just having a passive flow through the lungs, which then ends up in the left heart, which then pumps to the body. So that's what, by series, you mean it's one and then the other rather than the left heart and right heart next to each other. Correct. Yeah. Okay. Um, all right. So that is very different from normal anatomy. So what do we do when we're thinking about managing it? So I think the two things that you need to know, you need to know kind of what the fontan is and what the, how, the, how the blood goes. But once you have that single anatomical correlate in mind, then patients that are corrected really only differ, uh, differentiate themselves into four relatively minor differences. Even though you have kind of a lot of lesions go towards fontan, once you're at the fontan, the, those, all those differences become quite minute. And you basically only have four major points. So is this the fontan? Is this a single ventricle that was originally left or right, congenitally? Is the fenestration present or absent? And then what is the type of um, IVC to be a connection? And lastly, is the fontan actually failing or is it kind of well-functioning? Okay. So maybe let's walk through each of those and tell me why they're important. Sure. So let's um, start with regarding left to right ventricle. Patient with a functioning left ventricle um, appear to have a slightly better long-term prognosis and freedom from heart failure. And this is just my personal opinion, and I don't really have any evidence beta to back up this claim, is um, I feel like those patients are slightly better at handling volume shifts and paraplegic stresses 
um, they're the ones with the single RV. And is that because the LV was built to pump to the systemic circulation, uh, whereas the RV, it was not built for that kind of pressure? Yeah, that's basically what it is. I mean, the RV is not a good long-term metric. It's really good at pumping plot, uh, um, volume against the low-pressure system, but the LV is just much better at handling those higher um, systemic pressures, especially over um, decades of life. Okay. And the other point of differentiation, differentiation is the presence or absence of a fenestration. Basically, there's a small connection between usually the IVC and the common atrium that then allows blood to bypass the lungs in case of an increase in PVR to maintain preload for the single ventricle. You basically sacrifice a small dip in saturation for constant cardiac output. Today, this is mostly only done in patients with marginal fontan pressures to begin with, and is, of course, a prerequisite to introduce paradoxical emboli. The much larger variation, and I'm going to spend, I think, a minute or so on this, is the connection between the IVC and the pulmonary artery, which can be like a classical fontan where the tricuspid valve is just sutured shut and the right atrium is directly connected to DPA. Um, this, unfortunately, has resulted in a high incidence of arrhythmias because of the atrial enlargement and then the need for anticoagulation with the stagnant blood flow in the atrium. The next iteration was that the lateral tunnel was done, which needs to be done in stages. So first, you, we created a superior we have, First, a superior vena cava pulmonary anastomosis was created, usually with a so-called bidirectional gunshot. And this involves anastomosis of the transected superior vena cava to the upper margin of the right pulmonary artery, and thus providing blood flow through both lungs. In the second step, the lateral tunnel is created, where an intraatrial baffle is fashioned to direct the inferior vena cava blood flow to the pulmonary artery. This lateral tunnel has the potential for growth for the child, but has the disadvantage that there are multiple suture lines, raising the risk of arrhythmias, and part of the atrium still continues to be exposed to high venous pressure. Honestly, the most modern approach is the extracardiac fontan, which is probably most patients you're going to see, which is where the lateral tunnel is replaced by insertion of an extracardiac interposition graph between the transected inferior vena cava and the pulmonary artery. This way, blood completely bypasses both the atria, and this operation can actually be done without a cardiopulmonary bypass in some patients, but also or still requires a gland shunt to be placed first in a prior operation. Okay, so it sounds like there are multiple steps along the way here. So what are the different stages that these patients can present at? Yeah, that's where it gets a little bit more complex, but most of it is done um, during childhood. So um, right after delivery, many children require that the duct is being kept open to ensure that either systemic or pulmonary blood flow is maintained. Let us in a case in, uh, for instance, say we have a patient with pulmonary treated with a VSD. So this allows some time to perform all the necessary studies, stabilize the child, and prepare for the first operation. The decision which operation is needed um, firstly greatly depends on the sufficiency of pulmonary or systemic blood flow. For, for example, in the case with a lesion with insufficient systemic blood flow, a NOAA procedure might be needed. While in our case of the patient with tricuspid and a small VSD, you would then place a modified BT shunt or its equivalent um, to ensure sufficient blood flow across the lungs. This allows the child to grow, PVR to fall in the first few months postpartum, after which the BT shunt can be replaced with a bidirectional gland shunt, and thereby converting from blood flow using a high-pressure artery to blood flow using venovenous pressure. This protects the lung from high-pressure remodeling and allows the heart to adapt to less volume. And in the third step, the fontanic completion, all the remaining blood flow from the lower extremity by the IVC gets diverted to the heart, uh, sorry, gets diverted from the heart, of course, to the pulmonary artery via either the lateral tunnel or much more likely an extracardiac conduct. Honestly, all of these steps are typically accomplished before the child is five years of age, so it's very unlikely for an adult um, provider, to, uh, for an adult patient 
that has not completed all stages of the repair to present for surgery. Okay. So really when we see these patients uh, as just regular adult anesthesiologists, they're likely to have gone all the way through uh, to the final stage of having the Fontan. Correct. And then and that way you would only have to look for those four um, points that I mentioned earlier, how they differentiate themselves. Great. All right. And so how we want to look at those four points, obviously, and then how are we going to manage them perioperatively? Well, before we go even consider going back to the operating, I think a few things should be valued first. And first, and I'm repeating myself here, is really want to make sure that the complexity of the congenital heart disease in combination with the planned operation is adequate to be taken care of in your specific institution. Certainly, it's well established that approaching adults with congenital heart disease is a multi-system disease. And as I said, we go beyond current arrangement of blood flow. You want to look for heart failure in those patients, arrhythmia, restrictive lung disease, poor excess tolerance, and then liver and kidney failure with protein-losing enteropathy, where really prevalent in those Fontaine patients. You can have hypoxia in them, but um, most patients should... I mean, let's, let's step back a little bit. I think most patients with a Fontaine should be saturating close to 100%, because um, all the blood flow that's venous goes to the lungs first. But there can be a certain amount of patients who have hypoxia, and that is usually due to the formation of venous collaterals um, that then bypasses the lungs. And lastly, you can have um, poor vascular access. Um, but really rearranging the circulation, as we talked before, from parallel to when we're pulmonary and systemic blood flow and serous, really results in the need for pressure gradient between the venous side and the atrium to have blood flow across the lungs. So one of the major points, therefore, is to maintain that pressure gradient, and again, by lowering PVR, it's kind of a recurring theme here. In fact, um, there's some slides that show that PVR, ventricular diastolic function, and systemic vascular compliance all play a major role in regulating cardiac output. And of all those factors, only PVR is really easy with our control. Heart rate and contractility only seem to play a minor role in this in those um, simulations. Um, so basically what we can do, we can utilize our list from before on how to decrease pulmonary vascular resistance and then just add a need to maintain low atrial pressures by avoiding volume overload, maintain sinus rhythm, and then supporting the ventricular contractility. Of course, hypovolemia is a bad thing for those patients as it lowers CVP and thereby the driving force for blood across the lungs. So consequently, patients really tolerate poorly fasting, pneumotheridineum, positive pressure ventilation, and then sedation leading to hypocarbia. And as always, it doesn't matter how much, it doesn't matter too much, I should say, which medications one chooses, but really how they are used to achieve those goals. All right, so really what we're managing is the flow. We want there to be uh, adequate flow across the lungs, and to do that, we need to lower pulmonary vascular resistance in all the ways that you said. Correct. All right, great. So in general, uh, if you had to summarize, how should adults with congenital heart disease be evaluated, managed, and then, of course, uh, not only per- uh, intraoperatively, but where do they need to be managed and how do they need to be managed postoperatively? Okay. So just to summarize very briefly, and um, some of it is, of course, what we talked about. Um, so, again, make sure that the complexity of the lesion combined with the invasion of the procedure are really adequate for your center. And then you have enough or adequate supporting specialties, such as pediatric cardiology, maybe ICU care, that really do have the capacity to take care of those patients and to not only get them through the operation, but also get them through the post-operative course. Um, All congenital heart disease is a multi-organ disease, and therefore the patient should be optimized prior to doing any elective procedure, and um, that should be done in a collaborative effort. So aside from knowing the current mechanism and direction of blood flow, really be cognizant about some of the highlights like heart failure, arrhythmias, restrictive lung disease, poor excess tolerance, liver kidney failure, protein-losing enteropathy, especially for a tan patient, 
and then hypoxia, endocarditis prophylaxis. There could be associated syndromes with the disease, poor vascular access because they have been poked so many times when they were um, little or throughout their whole life. You, you need to consider all of those, and this is not even an, an exhaustive list. So modify the surgery as needed. For example, if you have a surgery in quiet pneumoperitoneum, you might want to talk to your surgeon if that is a good thing or if you want to kind of change the perfusion pressure, maybe do a less invasive approach, um, especially if the patient is heavily preload dependent. Oftentimes what we do, we make those cases the first one of the day. That way we minimize fasting and really have all resources available for the longest duration possible. But um, reassuringly and really importantly, most patients with non-complex disease that are undergoing a maybe lower moderate risk surgery, they just require standard monitoring and care. However, there are certainly high-risk patients out there, and they tend to benefit from a little bit more extensive monitoring, maybe not your line. Intraoperative transesophageal echocardiography can be um, really helpful, and of course, ICU care afterwards. And if you want to look about intraop management, it really depends to a large extent on the physiological groups that we mentioned earlier, so pulmonary hypertension, right heart failure, lower PVR, support DRE. They want shunting lesions where you want to balance the QPQS and avoid air in the IVs. And then the single ventricle physiology where you maintain those pressure gradient across the lungs, support the ventricle, and then manage the volume carefully. Well, and lastly, I guess, ensure that you have an anesthesia team that is comfortable with the case and then appropriate level of post-operative care, for instance, ICU care, or even a cardiac ICU, a pediatric ICU, depending on um, the um, qualifications of the age. So that's great. And is, uh, Jochen, do you, is there a kind of level of complexity where you think that really this should be handled by a cardiac anesthesiologist? Uh, or, uh, you know, certainly seems like some of the less complex, lower risk surgeries should be able to be done by any adult anesthesiologist. Where do you kind of draw that line? I'm hesitant a little bit because it's really difficult to say, to say, okay, this lesion with this surgery definitely requires a cardiac anesthesiologist. I think this is something that really depends on the structure where you're working. Yeah. Because um, there's some places that um, all of these patients are taken care of by cardiac anesthesiologists. There are other places where they're all taken care of by pediatric anesthesiologists. And then other places like ours where it kind of depends on the severity and the um, all the other circumstances. I think it's um, never the wrong um, option to ask and talk to colleagues. See, mm-hmm. What do you think? Is this, is this too complex? Do you think we should need some help? But I'm, I'm really hesitant to kind of give you an, a, a really definite line, okay, this lesion, this surgery definitely needs to be that kind of provider. It really depends on how many patients see it. And there's other um, practices out there where there's a lot of people who are not cardiac trained anesthesiologists, but who just happen to work in a center where they see a lot of those patients, and they're certainly going to be comfortable taking care of them. So it's it really is um, still very individualized. Yeah, I think that's that sounds right to me. You know, I think it's got to be a multidisciplinary team effort, as you say, where you're talking to a, a wide array of providers to figure out what's best for this patient, including who's going to provide the anesthesia care. Let me ask you about uh, when we think about monitoring. Um, certainly, I think as you said, for some of these more complex uh, lesions, an arterial line makes a ton of sense. Maybe even a, a TEE. Um, what about a, a PA catheter? I would be very nervous about a PA catheter in a patient who's had structural heart surgery and, and you know, where this thing's going to go and what suture lines might get disrupted by me sticking this uh, catheter in there. But what do you think? I like your hesitancy in that one. <laughs> um, if you think about PA catheters, we always, we always like to find um, a study that shows, okay, that kind of improves outcome in that patient population. We really don't, don't have that much. The two advantages of a PA catheter are, one, you can get a mixed venous set, which you can't really do with any other um, 
monitoring technique, at least not an accurate one. And two, you could theoretically place it awake and then use it during induction, which you can't do with a, with a TE. You could do with a transthoracic one, though. Um, though I agree, the information you get out of it is, I'm not sure if it's, it's worth the risk, especially if you have somebody who has private suture line. Um, to be honest with you, though, if they are in their um, 30s or 40s and they had their last operation like 20 years ago, those suture lines have usually been tested very rigorously and mm-hmm. should be um, relatively stable, though um, it's going to be the problem with the PA catheter is like the patients who might benefit the most of them, like maybe patients with a pulmonary hypertension, they're also the ones that have the highest incidence of complications. And if something goes bad, um, they also have the highest mortality with those complications. Yeah. So I'm usually very hesitant to play a, a PA catheter. And also bear in mind, like, for instance, if you have a patient with a fontan circulation, if you put a PA catheter through the SVC, go through the glenastomosis, first of all, you're going to have the um, risk of interrupting the glenastomosis. If you have a clot on your PA catheter and you kind of sit in, in the unfortunate place right at the glen between the, um, and you get a big clot there, you might occlude all the blood flow to the heart. Um, which is usually in adult not as big of a problem, but in children it's definitely a big problem. Mm. And then lastly, when you kind of when you put the PA catheters in that anastomosis, well, you're not really getting CVP, but you're actually sitting now in the pulmonary artery. Now you're getting actually mean pulmonary artery pressures. And if you go a little bit um, further, you can actually wedge that catheter. So I would be really careful, especially in those kind of patients. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. Great, Jochen. Anything uh, that we didn't cover? You think we should cover before we sign off? Well, I think there's just certainly many more things that we could talk about, but um, I think that it should be a good overview for now, and I think we talked about um, all the, the highlights for those patients at this point. Fantastic. Thanks so much for coming back on the show. Oh, thank you very much for having me. It was a pleasure. All right. Now is the time for our first ever ACRAC random recommendation. As I said, normally I would be asking the guest on the show to give me one, and then I would give one myself. But since I'm adding this in uh, after I've recorded with Jochen, I'm going to have to just do one from me this time. And of course, also in the future, we'll hopefully have some good listener ones to share as well. So my random recommendation for today is a fantastic book that a good friend of mine, Jeff Capadano, talked me in to listening to uh, and or reading. Sometimes I listen to them on Audible uh, audiobooks. Uh, It's called Bad Pharma. The full title is Bad Pharma, How Drug Companies Mislead Doctors and Harm Patients. It's by Ben Goldacre, and it is really fascinating. It goes into real detail about stuff you you just wouldn't imagine is possible in terms of how deceptive the practices of drug companies have been in ways that have really had consequences, a lot of which I bet you don't know about. I certainly didn't know about. So check it out, Bad Pharma by Ben Goldacre. I'm going to do a future episode, I think, where I'll do a little book review of it, and I hope we'll get a chance to interview Ben Goldacre about his book. If any listeners in the UK know Dr. Goldacre, let him know that he should write me back. I sent him an email and uh, asked him if he'd be willing to come on the show and let me interview him. If you know him, give him a little push. Tell him to come on ACRAC, and we'll do an interview with him. All right, that's my first ever random recommendation. All right. Well, that was great. And I think, you know, this, these can be so intimidating when you have patients with the history of these diseases. And it's so nice to have someone who's an expert to give us some ways to think through this. I'd also just emphasize when I have a patient who has a history of a congenital heart defect, I will definitely uh, consult with one of my colleagues who's a pediatric anesthesi- uh, cardiac anesthesiologist or someone like Jochen who deals with these patients 
uh, and just ask, you know, can you take a look at this for me? Let me know, like, what's this echo? How's it look? Uh, do you think we need to worry about this? Do you think this needs to be done by you? Uh, or do you think it's safe for me to do it? Just getting that kind of input can be really key. Um, all right. Let us know what you thought. Go to the website, ACRAC.com, A-C-C-R-A-C.com. You can leave a comment there that everyone can learn from. Maybe you have some other tips and tricks for these kind of patients that would be useful for everybody. Um, you can, of course, see all the episodes there and leave comments on any of them. You can also get a hold of me at ACRAC at ACRAC.com. If you are a fan of the show, please consider going to iTunes and leaving a comment and a rating. It really helps others find the show. You can also support the making of the show if you're interested by going to patreon.com slash ACRAC. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash A-C-C-R-A-C, where you can become a patron of the show. Even if it's just a dollar or two that you pledge, it makes a big difference, and we really appreciate it. You can also make a donation at paypal.me slash ACRAC anytime that you would like. Thank you so much to those who are already patrons and have already made donations. We really appreciate it. Thanks to Brian Park for the outlines he's made for some of the episodes. And, of course, our original ACRAC music is composed by the one and only Dr. Dennis Quo. If you like what you hear, check out his website at studymusicproject.com. It's really, really interesting, good stuff. All right. Well, that is it for today. Thank you so much for listening. For the ACRAC podcast and Dr. Jochen Stepan, I'm Jed Wolpaw. Remember... What you're doing out there every day is really important and valued. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.